The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. My guest today is Jack McFarlane, CEO at DeepStream Technologies. Now, DeepStream provides a procurement solution to clients like Mesk and uh, British Vault. Their SaaS platform aligns stakeholders and suppliers to make procurement seamless, visible, and automated. Now, DeepStream were originally funded by Techstars plus some angel investors, and then they raised a Series A led by Beringia in 2021. So, Jack, welcome to the uh, Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thanks, Gary. It's a pleasure to be on here. It's a real pleasure to have you. Now, you've got a somewhat unconventional background, a childhood that spans Africa and South America, followed by an investment banking career. I'd love to hear more about your early days and, and how that, you know, those experiences, those journeys have shaped you as a human being. Yes, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting background, I guess. It's pretty ad hoc, um, I guess, my childhood before the age of 14, 15, and quite a odd background, I'd say. I guess I started off my life, I was born in Egypt, although I don't remember it that well, because I left when I was a year old. And then I went to Tanzania for five and a bit years. And then I lived in Peru for six years in South America, which was a lot of fun. And then I moved to India for about a year and a half. Then I moved into to rural France, um, where my parents had a house and stayed there for a year and a bit. And then I came to England when I was 14. So it was a very kind of like haphazard upbringing. I think I went to about 10 different schools. I spent a lot of my time, I guess, being homeschooled or just sitting in my parents' living room reading books. So I definitely didn't follow any kind of national curriculum. I came to England and I really had not had a kind of education which was similar to m most of the education of my peers when I came back here. Um, so yeah, it was a really, really interesting experience. It was a bit of a journey. I think there's definitely kind of pros and cons to, to that kind of background. But I, I, in hindsight, especially, I think it was really, really cool. Sounds almost like a, a character in a children's novel as you went from country to country, but a fascinating upbringing. And then you went from that to investment banking. So you worked at UBS for eight years. How did you end up at DeepStream? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And it's a question that doesn't have a really clear cut answer apart from the serendipity of life. Yeah. So after, I guess, yeah, I went straight when I was in the UK, I went, I did economics at LSE and I kind of joined the kind of, I guess, conveyor belt of investment banking straight out of university. I started off in M&A and equity cap markets in London. And then I moved into a, in the equity derivatives uh, special sits financing team in London, after which I was moved out to New York to run the, the desk for Latin America for that special sits financing team, which was super cool. I was like living basically between Mexico and, and New York for a couple of years. And yeah, after about eight years, I kind of, it's not that I got bored of it, but I just yeah, wanted a new challenge, wanted to do something new. I wanted to kind of be more of a master of my own destiny. I really, really enjoy building up teams. I really like the camaraderie that comes with that. 
aligning people to a kind of common mission and vision um, and really trying to kind of punch above your weight in a, in a kind of big way and you know, knock some of the big boys off their perch with a small team. Um, so that's, I guess, from a personal perspective, what attracted me to the, I guess, the startup, the tech, the entre- entrepreneurial role. I actually, right at the beginning, I, I put a tiny bit of cash into DeepStream when it was, you know, uh, back of the envelope idea and and just to see if I could get involved and, and kind of get, dip my toes into the, the, the startup world whilst I was still working out in New York. And I think shortly after I did that, basically, they asked me to come and join as the CEO of the company, which happened in early early 2017. And, you know, I was obviously pretty, pretty interested in the concept and the vision, which was in place right at the beginning. The extent I put a tiny bit of money where my mouth was, I I really, really liked what they were kind of doing. And I thought it was a really kind of just a great opportunity for me to make that jump. I mean, I never thought I'd be, you know, if you'd asked me in 2016, whether I saw, saw myself as being in, you know, procurement and tech in 2022 i'd have definitely said no that wasn't part of the game plan but it's worked out quite well and it's been a really really exciting journey with lots of lots of ups and downs it's a very high uncertainty environment especially at the beginning did you join just before techstars then i joined about a year and a half before techstars so i joined early 2017 the Techstars program was 2018 i believe so yeah about a, a year and a half and when we last spoke, you mentioned to me that that first year was, shall we say, interesting and took a, took a bit of a toll. You had to uh, get rid of um, uh, the three founders. So if you go back to that period, that time, walk me through that. How did you handle the stress and the challenges of that period as a first time kind of you know, entrepreneur business leader how did i handle it well i don't, I don't know if i handled it <laughs> well i guess i did handle it because i'm here to tell the story yeah it's an extremely high stress environment right so you're basically at a, a company where there's a massive amount of uncertainty around what you're actually doing you don't have product market fit yet you're kind of working through the traps of not just kind of growing a team in itself kind of intrinsically and growing a business from a very early stage, but you're also kind of shooting in the dark in a, in a really, really big way. And that it does require quite a lot of, I guess, stress tolerance. In terms of managing it, I think it's just, it's just constantly trying to iterate your thinking around where you want to get to and being really kind of rational about that. So it's really easy, especially in the early stages of business, I found to, to kind of get high on your own supply in terms of like how great you're going to be, but it's really important to bring that back to reality and really kind of plot the path around how you're going to get to your end objectives. And so you kind of need to be quite clinical around that because that's, I think, why most startups will fail, right? That they have grand ambitions, they have a grand vision, but that doesn't pay the bills in the short term. It doesn't get you clients in the short term. So you need to kind of really start small, maintain a huge amount of focus, get the right people around you, and definitely get the people around you to kind of rally around what you're trying to do and and all see it as like a common journey rather than 
them working for you, right? I think that's one of the key things that's been great over the past few years is that the team that's in place, they all feel that this is their baby, right? They don't see this as someone else's baby that they're just kind of there to, to work for. They kind of really imbibe that same attitude that we're trying to do something that hasn't really been done before, that we're trying to go up against companies that are much bigger than us, much better funded than us, have a much higher track record than us, and we're trying to win. And I think just having that kind of shared mentality across the team is is super important because things get really tough quite often. And you know, being able to pull through requires like a high kind of grit and determination. And if you just try and bottle that all up yourself and you don't have people around you who are who are sharing that kind of uh, same vision as you, it's, it's, it's really, really tough. So I think in terms of like the question around how, how I tried to handle it was very much getting a group of people around me who shared in, in the kind of vision that, that I had contributed to that vision as well. So it's, it's, it's that they were creators of, of, of it too. It wasn't something that was kind of implanted over them and also kind of would be able to share in the in the fruits of, of that endeavor, right? So it was kind of everyone in the team is set to benefit in a big way if this goes right, right? It's not just me. It's, it's, a, it's a shared kind of um, endeavor amongst the, the entire team. I think that really, really, really helps. I think if you don't have that, it's really tough because people you know, will treat the job as a kind of nine to five job that they can rock up and, and do what's asked of them. That's not a good recipe for like trying to win and, and defy the odds, I think. So we're all on this journey together. That was the that was the ethos. Did you have a mentor or a coach that kind of helped you get through those challenging times? Or or do you these days have someone outside the organization who on a kind of ongoing basis is coaching and mentoring you? Unfortunately not. I would definitely say that. If you are able to get mentors and people who have done it before around you, I think that's that's a massive positive. I didn't really have that in the strict sense. I mean, I obviously had kind of ex-colleagues I used to work with. I had um, you know, a lot of support from people I used to work with, so I'd be able to touch base with them. I had investors um, who had made made their own money in other businesses who I was able to kind of like sandboard things off. But I would definitely say it's an extremely lonely place right it's 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 amazing the scarcity of kind of people you can touch base with and rely on for that kind of mentorship which makes it a lot harder so i definitely say that to the extent that people maybe listening do have those people around like that's a massive win right because the more lonely a place it is the harder harder you find it yourself and the more you can kind of share experiences and and get reassurance around what you're doing the better i 100 percent agree with that let's move on from that to diversity i know that diversity is a real passion for you you've worked hard to improve the diversity at Deepstream. How have you done that? Look, it's not easy, right? Because I think that the the with so many things going on and so many kind of battles that you need to fight, trying to kind of push a diversity agenda for the company is, is tough. And, and you naturally end up hiring people that are similar to you because that's your network. That's the people you've worked with before. That's the people who you, you can kind of like naturally fit in with from a working environment. So it's it's not easy one of the first things is like starts with the culture, right? In terms of like who who you have in the team from the outset. 
you know, our team is quite weird in terms of it's a bit eccentric. We have team, you know, our CTO is an ex-musician. Our head of product is an ex-musician. Our head of customer success used to sell uh, Porsche cars. You know, it's, it's a really kind of eclectic mix of, of people. And that was definitely something which we tried to do from the outset in terms of just getting a group of people who had a lot of different kind of life experiences and life backgrounds and try and work out problems that we're facing from a business perspective, from a grounds up basis, um, rather than being overly reliant on all having the similar background. So that's kind of one, one area which we, which we, tried to do in terms of the team culture and team composition. I think when you get to the more kind of, which now as we've been scaling up quite a lot, you have to be a bit more formulaic around it because you're just hiring more people. I think yeah, one thing which we've done around that is, yeah, there's some really cool tools out there. Like you know, we use Alva Labs, which is a kind of hiring process that, that runs people through different kind of uh, psychometric tests in the hiring process. And it tries to kind of remove bias of just hiring people who share similar backgrounds to you or have a similar background to you. That's been really, really helpful. I think also getting buy-in from the team that you have in that interview process is really important. So it kind of is a bit of a virtuous cycle. So if you have a kind of diverse or, or, or varied team from the outset and getting their buy-in during that kind of scaling up process naturally lends itself to increasing that kind of diversity amongst the team. Whereas if you had like a really, you know, if it was all, if it was five ex-bankers sitting in a room hiring people, like the odds are that you're going to probably have a limited diversity when you, when you scale up. Whereas when you have like a diverse team from the outset, it, it helps kind of maintain that different profile of people in the team. Surprised you haven't ended up with a whole bunch of uh, musicians though, since two of your top, top people are have a musical background. So um, it must be interesting at, at Christmas and get togethers to listen to those two jamming together. Yeah, I mean, we've, we definitely the idea of having a deep stream band has been floated. But yeah, we haven't we haven't cobbled that together. I'm not sure what I'd play. I'm terrible at music. So I'd probably be you know, playing the triangle in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> You could just stand there and conduct the orchestra or pretend to, at least. The solution you're selling, it helps procurement teams with tendering and RFX processes. And one of your recent articles proposes helping to shift procurement from being a cost center to a profit generation center. Now, I'm intrigued by that. How exactly does the DeepStream platform do that? There's one like a thematic point around that, which is, I guess, slightly detached from the product. And then there's a product. So I think like just in terms of how procurement is viewed by many businesses, it's often been seen as a kind of back office, as like a middle office function um, that's a real kind of cost center to the business. I think what a lot of businesses are coming becoming more aware of at the moment, especially with the supply chain crisis, is that actually like there's a huge amount of spend that businesses have, obviously, because they buy stuff, especially industrial companies. And the way in which they spend that contributes to the bottom line, right? So there's normally a high, high focus on revenue generation for a business as a kind of profit center. It's equally as important to, to have a real kind of hawkeye on the spend side of the business and being able to efficiently spend business's capital um, in the best way. And that 
equally contribute to the bottom line of businesses. So that's the kind of theme that, you know, that's kind of, I guess, one of the reasons why procurement is is ramping up in importance in terms of like all the tech companies out there that are addressing it. When you go to drill down into our kind of product, right? So what you see a lot of the time in procurement and buying stuff, services, goods, it's incredibly manual, like cumbersome process. It's all email driven. It's a real kind of admin based process, right? So what does that result in? It results in buyers, businesses, not going out to many suppliers, you know, because it's such a hassle to go out to multiple suppliers, not bidding transactions out on a regular basis, right? So what DeepStream tries to do and what the products has been built to do is to really facilitate that buying process and allow businesses to super easily bid stuff out on a regular basis, engage with more suppliers on a regular basis, build competitive kind of bidding frameworks within their processes via our product so that they're always going out to lots of suppliers. They're being able to evaluate them side by side on a regular basis. There's a kind of complete observability of like how they're doing that and just engendering like a much, much more competitive framework for all of their tendering activity when they're buying stuff. So that's what the product does. So when you see businesses who kind of take that approach, they will materially reduce the spend, right? The, 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 the top, dollar amount that they're spending on an annual basis because all of their procurement officers and their procurement teams are engaging in a very kind of competitive uh, process for, for most of their spend. So that's, that's I guess, what, what I mean in moving it from a kind of cost center to a to revenue or profit generation center. Got it. And in terms of the vertical markets that you're targeting a lot of your initial successes were in the renewable energy sector but seems to me that your solution supports global trade global commerce across any sector so was it a conscious decision initially to focus on the energy sector yeah 100% the tool as you say is is, is industry agnostic right to the extent you're buying stuff from multiple counterparties right? It works, right? So, so that's from a, from a product perspective, it's very industry agnostic, but we say kind of use case specific. It definitely was a conscious decision to start in the energy sector. I mean, as a small tech company initially, you really have to maintain a high degree of focus. And so going too wide is, is, is not a good idea. So we looked at the market and where to start off. And the energy sector has you know, high proportion of spend versus like overall company revenue. So it was a fertile sector to target from that perspective. It was also a sector where there's a kind of high requirement for compliance and auditability during all of their tendering processes, which lends itself very well to our solution. So yeah, we definitely did consciously pick that sector as the initial sector to go to go after before expanding more broadly from a sector perspective. Now, the first half of 2022, we've seen quite a shake-up in terms of tech sector funding and valuations. Where have you got to in terms of VC funding and how have you been impacted by that recent shake-up? So, I mean, it's really, really, I guess, uh, fortunate, right, in terms of our timing to the market. So we, we raised our Series A, which is just a bit over 5 million quid at the back end of last year which yeah the market then was was super supportive for i guess tech companies looking for funding 
we got that closed out yeah in november december last year the market has definitely moved from a from a funding perspective this year you're seeing valuations coming down you're seeing tighter terms uh being put into term sheets uh, from vc investors i've got a lot of kind of friends who are raising capital at the moment and they're finding it quite tough i mean thankfully for us we were able to you know get that deal closed last year so we're in a pretty pretty robust financial position which is great we have a a long runway from a cash position and we're able to kind of keep carrying out our growth plans i think we we are definitely a bit more cognizant around not having the business to need external funding so we're able to kind of break even way ahead of our runway uh, running out which is great i think that companies right now that are overly reliant on external financing in the next few years are going to find it quite tough. Our business model is very kind of, we have a viable business model. We have clients paying us, that's growing steadily and it's on a path to break even. So we have the option to not get more external funding if that market continues to dry up. Although who knows what it's going to look like in two years time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What have been the biggest challenges and the biggest learnings for you during these past two years? It's been two crazy years, firstly with the pandemic and now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So major challenges, major learnings for you during during that period. I'll come on the the, the, the COVID and, and the kind of inv- Russian invasion of Ukraine in a second but i think overall like the main learnings for me of the past couple of years around is around maintaining focus right so you're really really at risk as a as a tech company of of going too broad and losing focus so i was definitely like i definitely made that mistake a few times (laughs) and you know just doubling down on a narrow focus around what your product delivers and being able to articulate that value succinctly to your client base has been absolutely key in terms of getting the product off the shelf the more kind of fuzzy it is it might sound great but it doesn't actually punch through in terms of generating clients and sales so maintaining focus and really narrowing that focus to the extent possible has been key i think we were really really fortunate from a business perspective during the entire COVID crisis, right? We actually saw a massive uptick in sales and in, in product penetration during that period. It was due down, down to a few factors. I think one is everyone was sitting at home, right? So the need to kind of collaborate and communicate in a digitally efficient way went up materially, right? So you went from a situation where everyone was in the office, they kind of like be able to talk to each other, they're next to each other, to, to, to a situation where everyone's in their you know living room and you know, so engaging in a digital product that helps solve their their communication processes with their suppliers was was very positive for us as a business and then also you know as a knock-on effect like digitalization just went up the agenda for a lot of the businesses we were targeting so it went from a situation where digitalization was a nice to have and so it's quite tough to get meetings um, from a sales perspective to a situation where digitalization was at the forefront of how businesses were coping with the new working environment so it became much easier to to land those meetings uh, to sell the product on the 
more recent uh, kind of, I guess, uh, Russia-Ukraine situation, I mean, it hasn't had a huge impact on us from a business perspective. I think what we're starting to see, and this is coming into play in the last month or so, but we're starting to see, given the supply chain price crisis and prices being jacked up materially by suppliers and suppliers no longer being available for buyers, we're starting to see businesses look to like digital solutions like ours to engage with more suppliers to ensure that supplier prices don't get driven up too much to have a kind of more competitive way of dealing with with suppliers so the whole supplier uh, supplier price inflation is is probably a, a good supporting factor for our business is is what we're starting to see although it's it's not totally conclusive yet wow so you're one of these companies that's benefited from these major shocks and disruptions over the last two years you've got tailwinds rather than headwinds coming from both supply chain disruption and kind of increased digitalization of uh, of businesses we've been pretty fortunate in that respect i think it's also important to mention when change happens it, it is an opportunity so change disrupts behavior and it forces human beings working at businesses to look for solutions which can help them cope with that change so I think that you know, there, there's often, it's horrible as to say, because obviously crises are bad, but there's often silver linings from a business perspective in terms of how you can cater to the change which is happening. I mean, an example of that right now is from a product perspective, we're really accelerating product features in our roadmap that drive cost reduction and spend reduction in the RFX process for buyers. That's a consequence of seeing that that's a real pain point. Like all of the all of our sales team who go to conferences all the time, like the, the feedback they get over and over again over the past month or two has been supply chain bottlenecks, not being able to access suppliers, suppliers putting up their prices up massively during that tendering process. And they're looking for tools to deal with that. So as a consequence, we kind of strategically have, have shifted a bit of our product roadmap toward features that can deliver on those needs. So I think it's a, it's a combination of being, I guess, a bit lucky in terms of it providing um, tailwinds and also quickly shifting our product priorities and our product messaging to clients based off what those changes mean from a business needs perspective around who we're selling to. That ability to respond speedily to changes in the market is a is a real differentiator. So it's great to hear that you've been able to uh, walk the talk, as they say. What are your plans and aspirations for DeepStream in the next two to three years? I mean, two to three years is a long time in the startup world. <laughs> the vision of DeepStream is really around providing a more efficient way for businesses to communicate with each other to get transactions done. So we want to move commercial activity around businesses tendering out to each other for goods and services from a manual email medium to a digital medium. So that's a real driver in terms of what we're trying to drive through for our product and our market penetration objectives. I think that in the next two, three years, when you look, look 
at that time horizon, what we're, what we're going to be able to start doing much more effectively is using a lot of the non-confidential data that is, is generated through the platform to further facilitate that communication dialogue between buyers and suppliers. So the more usage we get, the more users we get on the platform, the more kind of engagement we get between businesses on our platform, because they're all engaging via a kind of common medium, the more it moves like bilateral opaque exchanges between businesses to a more of a marketplace-based framework where you have more easily accessible information about counterparties, you have more awareness around suppliers are out there that can bid on tenders for you. And the more quickly you're able to, to kind of communicate with them to arrive at kind of a, an awarding a transaction decision. So it's a shift from a process automation and pure spend reduction uh, value proposition to one that's more network driven and moving the kind of ecosystem to one that's more open and digital and, and more like what we have in our daily lives for other consumer products. It's never going to be the same, but that shift is 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 what we're aiming to kind of achieve, I'd say, in the next two to three years. Awesome. That sounds like a, you're on a wonderful journey over the next two to three years. I wish you and the team huge success. And uh, maybe we can, we can have a follow-up in a couple of years' time, see how things have panned out, see if it's gone exactly the way you envisaged. Well, it definitely won't, but uh, <laughs> it'll definitely change. The, 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 the beauty about uh, tech startups and, and this kind of journey that we're all on is that you do, you know, to some extent, you're a little like, like a little paper, paper, paper boat in a, in a giant sea. So you're not a tanker. So there, there, there's always change which happens, which is really cool because it allows you to kind of make iterative strategic decisions around how to get to your objectives in the best way. It definitely will change, but um, hopefully we'll be able to talk and we'll be in a in a good place. Well, I look forward to that. And maybe you'll at least be on a nice uh, sailing catamaran, no longer on the paper boat when we next speak. But uh, thank you again. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today, Jack. Excellent, Gary. No, it's been a pleasure. And um, thanks, for, thanks for taking the time and having me on. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.